0: Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you all today. My name is Matt O'Sullivan. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. And I just wanted to note, um, I do apologize about the fans this morning. The uh, HVAC system in this building is nigh unto just a straight-up mystery. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So we're doing what we can to keep us all cool. Um, But in the meantime, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 2 this morning. And as you're turning there, I'd like you to imagine a scenario with me for a moment. Imagine that someone you know who is not a Christian, uh, maybe it's a coworker or a friend or a relative, imagine that you're you're enjoying lunch together and they ask you uh, out of the blue, what difference does God make in your life? And so then imagine you respond and you say, well, it means I I go to church on Sunday, I I go to these Bible studies throughout the week, and then I, I listen to this kind of music, but I don't watch that kind of movie, um, I'm pro-life, I eat only at Chick-fil-A when I get fast food, because that's what Christians do, it seems. But then imagine they, they cut you off and they say, no, 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 I'm not just talking about your opinions or where you eat your fast food or, or your interests. I mean, what difference does God make in your life when there are things about you that you can't stand? What difference does God make in your life when you are wrestling with just why you get up in the morning and you are plagued by doubts? Or what difference God makes in your life when it's not giving you a good hand and you keep slogging through suffering and you keep taking blows left and right? What difference does he make then? And if you're like me, thinking about having that kind of conversation probably makes you a little nervous. But at the same time, it ought to excite us because that kind of just good, real conversation is so often what the Holy Spirit uses to bring the gospel to bear in other people's lives. And so it's worth us asking that question this morning, what difference does God's presence make in our lives when we're struggling with sin, with doubt, with suffering? Even what difference does his presence make when life seems good and all is well and we've got the routine down? Because that question isn't only critical for our witness in the world, it is crucial for our understanding of our discipleship and our life as Christians. And it seems that camera's ear is bigger than mine because this thing is a little loose. <clears throat> um, but it, it matters because so often we live the Christian life as though it's just a matter of being aboard the right train. And we act like salvation is God busting us off of the train that's hurtling towards hell, and He's punching our ticket on a train bound for heaven. So that then all the Christian life amounts to is we sit back, we relax, and we await our final destination. But in reality, the picture we get in the Bible is we are called to be disciples of Christ, which means. Christ on the cross has paid the price that we deserve in our sin. He's purchased for us the rights to be called sons and daughters of God, and then he calls us. And he calls us to follow him on a path that is narrow, and yet that is the most joyful path the world has ever known. It's the path to newness of life in him, and he promises to be with us no matter what mountains or valleys or rivers or critters await us along the way. He will be with us, and his spirit will use us to find other wandering souls and to bring them homeward bound to the Father. And so often we can, we can sit here on Sunday morning, we can listen and we can say, yes, I want to be a disciple of Christ, but then Monday comes and we live as though we're just aboard a train. We keep our heads down, our earbuds in, and we keep to ourselves. And when sin pounces upon us then and, and the doubts come thundering in and the suffering threatens to swallow us whole, we find ourselves chasing after the same commodities and false worship that the world has to offer. We find ourselves way off course. And so for us this morning, it's important then that we hear Hosea's calls. We've seen throughout this entire book, God in his redemptive judgment, when he calls out our sin, he's calling us to come home to him. He's calling us out of that which deceives and destroys us and into his presence, where he gives us life. And his covenant love, which is steadfast in a world that's always changing, is there as a rock and a mighty fortress for us to take refuge in. And so as you've come to expect with Hosea, this is another heavy passage. And I almost opened up the way Cameron did last week and then he opened that one, and I was like, well, I gotta change my intro because you'd hear the same thing twice. But at this point, we've come to expect that it's heavy, but I hope that you've started to see that within the heaviness, of Hosea's message, which is really just to open our eyes to the gravity of our sin, there is a shining beam of hope in the love we have in Christ. And so the big idea that we're gonna look at in this passage this morning is that God calls us out of the self-deceit and the self-destruction of our sin. He calls us into the newness of life that is held out to us in Christ and in God's presence alone. So if you would uh, turn to the text, we're gonna read verses two through six first. So, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he, that is Jacob, took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So, you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love. And justice, and wait continually for your God. Now, this part of Hosea twelve is, is interesting because, as you may have noticed, most of the time Hosea has been talking to Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom has been split into the northern and southern kingdoms, and yet here he says God has an indictment against Judah, the southern kingdom. And so chapter 12 of Hosea is one of the few times in the whole book where Hosea is going after the entire kingdom of Israel, both north and south. And he does it in a really interesting way. He talks about Jacob. He doesn't talk about Judah's king at the moment or the whole nation. Instead, he talks about Jacob, the forefather of all 12 tribes of Israel. And he does that because both the northern and the southern kingdoms would have taken great pride in being able to find in their ancestry Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, these great patriarchs. And what Hosea is doing is clever. He's saying, okay, you wanna identify with Jacob. Well, which Jacob are you talking about? the one who's been redeemed and transformed by God's grace or the one who by his own self-reliance was known for his namesake as the deceiver or literally as he who grasps at the heel. He who grabbed symbolically his brother's heel from the womb and who would go on to deceive, to manipulate, to lie, and to do whatever he could to take away his older brother's birthright and blessing. And the interesting thing is, Jacob was the one that God had intended to have as the forefather of Israel. And yet Jacob didn't rest in, he didn't wait upon the Lord, he took matters into his own hands. He made a real mess of his life. If you know anything about his story in Genesis, he's always on the run, either from Esau or from Laban, these people whom he's cheated and he's lied to. He truly was a deceiver, he was self-reliant, he did not wait upon the Lord. And then we see again in verse three and verse four this interesting idea that in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. That is a reference to the pivotal moment in Jacob's life from Genesis 32, where he wrestled with God in the form of of an angel, and God revealed himself to Jacob in this key moment where Jacob is basically awaiting what he thinks is his certain doom as Esau is coming for him. And as it will turn out, Esau and Jacob will be reconciled, but Jacob doesn't know that yet. And this man in whom is the presence of God appears and wrestles with Jacob on the ford of the Jabbok River throughout the night. And it's a very visceral and physical thing. The presence of God was near him, and yet in God's grace, he allows Jacob to wrestle him into a stalemate. And then as dawn is breaking, God touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of socket, if you know the story, so that all that Jacob can do is he is now utterly dependent on God. He can no longer be self-reliant. All he can do is cling to this angel and cry out, Lord, bless me. Do not leave until you have blessed me. And it was in that moment when he was at his weakest that he was finally, for the first time in his life, truly strong in the Lord, because he was resting in grace and not on his own effort. And so in putting that out there, what Hosea is doing is he's dangling two versions of Jacob in front of Judah. And he's saying, are you like Jacob, the self-reliant, he who makes a mess of his life and is constantly lying? And in this case, Judah should be saying yes. And so then by implication, will you be like Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel because he was transformed by God's grace and his presence? And then with that contrast hanging in the air, as it were, Hosea gets extremely specific and he reminds us that Jacob met God at Bethel. And that happened twice in his life, both before the wrestling match and afterwards. Afterwards, God called him to Bethel and said, build an altar there and worship me in truth. And for us, as we've worked our way through Hosea, Bethel ought to throw up a red flag. And we ought to say, that sounds familiar. Because if you remember, when the Northern Kingdom split off from the Davidic covenant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, decided he was going to set up a center of false worship to consolidate his power and to lead God's people astray. And he built golden calves, these idols, and altars at two places, Dan and Bethel. And for that reason, throughout the entire book of Hosea, Hosea almost never says Bethel, which means house of God. For him, he says, that is no longer the meaning of that place to y'all. Instead, he calls it Beth-aven, which means house of wickedness. And so the fact that he now returns to the language of Bethel here, shows us what he is saying is he is calling out to Judah and Ephraim and he's saying, Flee the false worship that you have made for yourself. Let go of your self-reliance and return to the Lord where he may be found. Come back to him. That's why then in verse five, he, he just proclaims the name of the Lord. He says, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. The idea is that in God alone, not in these statues you have made, not in your own power, in God alone, there's hope for your life. Will you return? And so verse six is I think one of the most beautiful calls for repentance in the entire book of Hosea. And he calls then for, for Judah by the help of their God to return. And that's critical, because so often we can turn repentance itself into something that we're supposed to do to make God like us. When in reality, our hearts are so bad off, we do not want to come home to the Father unless His Spirit is already taken hold of our hearts and working in us changed and sanctified desires. And in calling them then to return to God and to cling to love and justice, what he's doing is he's calling them to remember the covenant that God made with them, to love God in true worship. It's the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to seek justice is to do nothing, at the very root of that, it is nothing more than loving your neighbor as yourself. If that were true, and there would be no need for a court system. And so his point is that you start there, you live out the covenant, live out the life you've been called to and leave behind yourself reliance and your sin and return to the Lord. And then he says, wait continually for your God. And I think for us, that is actually one of the most challenging things to do in our world. And it's worth asking yourself this morning, when was the last time you waited continually for God? And you might start by saying, well, when was the last time you waited for anything? You know, think about it like this. You know, if you're waiting in line in a drive thru or for a movie, usually what happens is you whip out your phone and you put yourself into the, the news feed on, on Facebook or on your favorite news website. You, you pour yourself into consuming people's stories on Snapchat. And yet, there's a difference between being distracted and diverted and truly waiting. To wait looks like hope, as Josh was talking about earlier, where you have an active expectation, you are looking towards something and all of your being is aimed at that. And so to wait upon the Lord, it doesn't look like us standing in line, you know, phone in hand, just scrolling through stuff, biding our time. To wait upon the Lord looks a lot more like Christ in Gethsemane as he is praying with the cross before him, praying out to God, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And notice that he prays the same thing three times. Waiting upon the Lord is truly a wrestling match, as we see with Jacob. It's something that takes stamina. It's something that we pour all of our being by the power of the spirit into. It's not passive. And so for us, what that looks like practically is that maybe for as long as you can remember in your life, you are wrestling with the same besetting sin and time and time Time out, you cry out to God, Lord, would you deliver me from this? You cry out, Lord, would you help me to have a pure mind? And you say next time you will not look and before you know it, next time comes and you've spent an hour looking at stuff online you shouldn't have. And you wonder if you can even come into the presence of God because you messed up again. It looks like us, when we have these questions, these doubts, maybe even about whether or not God is there and if he loves you, if he could be a good, good father in such a broken world, What it looks like to wait upon the Lord then is to come into his presence and ask the questions you want to ask. You don't have to have the answers first. And it looks like us, no matter how hard this summer may have been, if you've just heard news of bad diagnosis for yourself to family crisis and emergency over and over again, and you're wondering if there's no end to it, to wait upon the Lord means you continue to seek him where he may be found in worship, in the means of grace. We give up so easily on our worship. And yet, Hosea is reminding us that it is here in the presence of God. It is there that our life is made full and real and it is renewed. And so consider this quote from John Calvin. It's long, you couldn't ever fit it on a coffee cup, but it is a beautiful quote. And it's really worth just soaking in this imagery and thinking about it today. So this is what Calvin says. He says, we hence see that we ought to seek the presence of God Though he may severely try us, though we may suffer much, though our strength fail, though we, may not, though we may be made lame through life, we ought not yet to shun the presence of God, but rather embrace him with both arms and retain him as it were by force. For it is much better to groan under our burden and to feel his power who is above us than to continue free from toil and to rot in our pleasures as they do whom God forsakes. And we see how much such an indulgence ought to be dreaded by us, For unless we are daily sharpened by various temptations, we immediately gather rust and other evils. It is therefore necessary in order that we may continue in a sound state that our contest should be daily renewed. And hence I have said that we ought to seek the presence of God, however severe the wrestling may be. So what Calvin is saying is that no matter how hard our life may be, no matter how fierce Sin seems to be, when it is pouncing upon us, no matter how big and heavy our doubts are, no matter how severe the suffering, it is always worth it to push through that in the spirit and to cling to the presence of God, to cling to Christ, as we've just sung, because it is there that our hearts are renewed, it is there that our hope is found. And yet, despite this gracious warning and the loving call to repentance to return to God, Both Judah and Ephraim will not listen. And as we continue, we're gonna see they have the exact opposite of what they've been called to. Rather than clinging to love and justice, they'll have an utter lack of both. And so as we turn now again to the text, we're gonna pick up in verses seven through nine and we'll see there Ephraim's lack of justice. And in that, we're going to see the self-deception that comes with our sin. So here again, the word of the Lord. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich, I've found wealth for myself, and in all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God, and from the land of Egypt I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now, in these very few brief verses, a lot happens. And one thing it's worth noting at the beginning is that whenever you're translating a language you always have to pick some things to communicate in your translation and some things to leave in the original. And that's especially true in poetry. And if you have an NASB, I know they footnote this, I'm pretty sure. And if you have a study Bible, it might mention it as well. But the word for merchant here, that's its primary meaning. But the word was pronounced in Hebrew, kanaan, or Canaan. And so the power of the poetry here is that on the heels of this call to repentance, this call to repentance, the very next word is Canaan. And if you are an Israelite, whether in the north or the south, that would have been a bombshell going off, right in your face. Because Canaan was the very group of people that they were called to push out of the land because of their pagan idolatry. These were the folks who had no justice, no love for God, those who would offer up their own children as sacrifices in their worship. And now Hosea is saying to God's people, you have become like that. It would be like Hosea standing before us and telling us you are your own worst enemy. Whatever you think is the lowest of the low in the world, that is what you and your sin have become. For an example, it would be like Harry Potter being told you're a Slytherin. You know, if you get that reference. And in a more serious note, it would be like us being told you have made yourself the lowest of the low and you can't see it because that is the supreme irony here is that if you look at the next verse, Ephraim has all the confidence in the world. He looks at his own hands, he looks at his wealth, and he says, they can't find in me iniquity or sin. And that is not the cry of a clear conscience. That is the boast of a person who has wealth, who has power and influence and who can wield it and wrap the world around their finger. And they think that no matter what they do, no one will find them out. And the amazing thing is that two sermons ago that I preached back in the, the late winter, we did that sermon series on grace and unexpected places where we did one chapter from each of the five, first five books in the Old Testament. And as the Lord would have it, the passage I preached was Deuteronomy eight, in which God called his people to remember all that he had done for them. This was before they came into the promised land. And he said, don't forget, do not say my hand and my power have gotten me this wealth and you forget the Lord your God. And what did Ephraim just say? He says, ah, but I have found wealth and his self-confidence, his self-reliance that that mutates into this poisonous self-deception where he can no longer see how far he's fallen. And so often that is our hearts. We look at our circumstances, we look at our bank account, we look at our accomplishments and we think, if I was truly sinning, surely it would have shown up by now. My life's too good to really have any need for a savior. The problem with sin is not always that we see it, the problem with sin is that we don't see how bad off we really are. And in being blinded and deceived by ourselves and our sin, we lose ourselves, though we think we've gained the world. And yet then, as Ephraim has gone after all these commodities and this false worship, God enters in and he cries out and he says, I am the Lord your God. And as we heard in Psalm 62, our call to worship this morning, God, He is perfectly just. Whereas Ephraim had these false balances, which meant, by the way, basically it's the equivalent of credit card fraud, is that in their transactions, they would weigh out their precious metals. And so if your balances were false, you would rig it so that people had to pay you more than they actually owed. And yet God, his balances in which we all go up before his throne, they're not rigged. And both the poor and the rich alike are dead in their sin. And our only hope is to be clothed in the life and righteousness of Christ which is offered to us freely in the gospel. And so God, in calling out their sin here, in entering in and breaking down their facade and ripping off the mask of their self-reliance, though it would hurt for them, it is the most gracious thing he could possibly do. It is like the, the beautiful scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan, with his claw, rips off the dragon skin of Eustace. And as Eustace reflects upon that, he, he says it hurt, but it was a good pain. And though so often when our sin finds us out and God enters into our lives and drags us out, sometimes kicking and screaming from our sin, though it hurts in the moment, there's always the sweet relief of newness of life in Christ on the other end. And so here God says to his people, He says, I will again make you dwell in tents. I will take away this wealth that has blinded you, I will bring you into exile. And the feast he refers to is the Feast of Booze. And that feast was interesting because it was designed to remind Israel of what God called them to remember in Deuteronomy 8. It came in the harvest season, right when their, their barns would be full of food for the winter, for the dry season. It was then that God would try every year to remind them through this feast, I'm the Lord your God, I have provided for you. Do not rely on yourself. Know who you are and know how much I love you. And so in bringing them back to the tents, God is peeling back their facade and he's bringing them into a position and circumstance in life in which his grace and his love for them would be made real again. And so consider this this reflection of Derek Kidner's on this passage. It's, It's very insightful. He says, the reference to the feast is a double thrust. First, in effect, was it for this that I redeemed you to make you a bunch of Canaanites? And secondly, When you relive the Exodus each year, camping out as your fathers did, is it only make believe? Or is it to relearn the lesson of those days that man does not live by bread alone? So if they will only take it, there is healing and not mere doom in God's resolve to strip away the comforts that have turned these pilgrims into profiteers. And for us then, it's worth asking ourselves, do the means of grace, and by that I mean prayer, worship, church on Sunday, God's word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's supper, do these things, these means of grace, do they regularly unmask your sin and remind you of who and whose you are in Christ? That outside of Christ, you are far worse off than you'd ever want to admit. And yet that in Christ, you're far more loved than you could ever dare hope. The means of grace you know, in a world of drive-throughs and Walmart where we have all of our needs at our fingertips and Amazon is growing and growing It's so easy for us to say there's no room for God in such a world. And they've been saying that for 100 years as science and and industrialism have risen, and yet our hearts have not changed. And the means of grace then are meant to be more than the spiritual equivalent of a quick, quick lube oil change or drive through fast food. They are meant to be those things in which we slow down and we remember the goodness of God Which we slow down, we have time to take stock of our hearts, to see where we've gone astray, where we've commodified our faith and turned it into a lucky eight ball, to see where we've been worshiping something that is not giving us life, that has turned us from the Lord our God, and then ultimately in unmasking our sin to bring us face to face with Christ, in whom we can run to the throne of God. And so I'd encourage you this morning and this day, as we rest in the Lord, to take time and consider that. Because as we're about to see, for Ephraim and Judah, they did not listen, they did not taste and see that the Lord is good, but they pressed on in further into their sin and they destroyed themselves because of it. So let's turn back to the text and pick up in verse 10. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window." Now this last section, right off the bat, reminds us again of God's radical patience with his people. Because remember that from the time of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, when Israel, the northern kingdom, first went astray until the time of Hosea and the eventual exile is 200 years. For 200 years, God says that he's been sending the prophets to cry out and proclaim his word, to call the people back, to warn them about their sin, to call them back over and over and over again. And time and time again, they refuse. And I love the imagery in verses 12 and 13, the story of Jacob going to the land of Aram and serving there for a wife. If you don't know the story, he served his uncle Laban for 14 years, guarding sheep in order that he could marry his sweetheart. And I I used to joke with my father-in-law, I said, please, like, maybe I could do seven, but 14 years, that'd be a long time. And yet, if, if you've had that experience where you have gone through long years of dating, you know that it's worth it because you love that person. And so imagine then, by extension, that if you would go through that many years of dating, if it meant you could be with that person for your whole life, look at how many years God spent going after his people again and again and again, calling them back to himself. Think about your own life. How many times maybe before you became a Christian and maybe you're not one now, think about and look at your life at how God has been calling you to himself. So often it's funny to me that we are ashamed to share the gospel in the world, that we we get sheepish about our faith. And yes, the world doesn't like us and it's been that way from the beginning. We've got it better off. We're not fed to lions like they were under Nero. So that's one thing we've got going for us. And yet the amazing thing is, why would we be ashamed ashamed of a story which the Almighty God who made everything, who is perfect, would then, the second person of the Trinity, Christ the Word, Come, make himself a man in the lowest of men and die for us. So great is his love to bring sinners home to their father. We ought not ever be ashamed to share that story because it is the most amazing story there ever was. It puts to shame anything you could read or watch. And that is the love then that the prophets cry out over and over again to Ephraim and to Judah. That is the love we hear week in and week out in our worship. And just as Hosea was a prophet who was sent to guard Ephraim from their own sin, and then the reference to the prophet that the Lord used to bring Israel from Egypt, that was Moses, so too does Christ even now guard us, his church, through his word. You might wonder, well, what does he guard us from? He guards us ultimately from ourselves, from our own sin, from the sin that remains raging in our hearts. Threatening to pull us away, to go back to the life we once knew. And it's interesting then, the language used in chapter 13 about Ephraim's sin. That at one point he was doing well, and then when he turned to Baal, he died. The picture there, and, and you know, this is one image Hollywood's given us that's really useful, is that in our sin we are truly the walking dead. We live, and yet we're not alive. We think our life is good, we think we have all we need, and yet before God's throne, and in view of eternity, we have no life, truly. And it's amazing too, if you think about what sin really is then, because what sin is, is it is rebellion against God, and yet ultimately, though we think it leads to our liberation, as Satan would have us think, as we see on display in the fall, Ultimately, it is his masterstroke because he convinces us that we think, so that we think what is good for us actually destroys us in the end. So not only does sin deceive us and blind us to our great need, but in the end, it destroys us. And so, any time God enters into our lives and rattles our cages and and presses upon us our sin, what He is doing is He is calling us out of what will surely lead to our doom and into his grace in order that we might have life. That's why then in verse three, the imagery is of mist and dew and chaff, which is the dry part of the wheat that was useless that would just blow away in the breeze and of smoke. Hosea's point is that Ephraim, if they will not turn from their false worship, they will destroy themselves. As we've said a couple of times in this sermon series, so often we throw off the worship of God, we throw off the Christian life, and we yoke ourselves to something else, be it sports or career, our own identity, or whatever it may be, and in making that the hope and the centerpiece of our lives, we wind up draining ourselves of all life. As David Allen Hubbard puts it, he says, the point is that idolatry carries its own punishment. You worship nothing, you get nothing, you end as nothing. so often then what happens as we hear God's word preached as it guards our hearts week in and week out is that we are reminded of just how bad sin is because so often we're not convinced we don't think that sleeping around is that bad because we see those who do it seem like they're a lot happier than we are and we've never even been on our first date and we're halfway through college we wonder well maybe maybe this thing that God's talking about doesn't have my goodness in mind We think as teenagers that our parents don't know any better and that we're the first generation to go through anything in life at all and rebelling is just sort of part of growing up and everybody does it. And yet, we're reminded is that our sin will destroy us and Hosea even points out to Ephraim, look how far you truly have fallen. He says, it is said of you, those who offer human sacrifice, their own children, and we read of that in 2 Kings 17, 17. He says, not only have you sunk that low, but you've made an utter fool of yourself, kissing these golden calves in worship. And perhaps we ought not laugh too much because some of us dressed up as cows a couple weeks ago to get a free sandwich, so you know, there's that for us too. But the point is, is that in our sin, we make ourselves foolish and we do things that are, we ought to be utterly ashamed of. It's not casual, it has a price. And so the question for us then, is how have you been changed by your worship this past ministry year? You know, we're getting ready to, with the new school year, start a new ministry year. This has been my first year here as a youth director. So it's been a a formative year for me. And I leave, and I phrase that question very purposefully. I said, how is your worship left ambiguous? Because you are worshiping something. The question you have to first ask yourself is this, is what you're worshiping the one true God, in spirit and in truth? Or you, is your heart this past year been going after something else? And you've been changed one way or the other because what we worship, what we put in the center of our lives, that is what is defining us, that is what is cultivating us, that is what is driving us forward. And as we've heard several times this morning then, if it is not Christ, it is something that is as oppressive as Pharaoh was to Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. It is something that no matter how tantalizing its promises may be will destroy us in the end. And especially as I've thought about my own life, the the biggest change for me is that I now see the, the sense and just my own foolishness in not Sabbathing well all throughout college. I was that dude who would stay up late on Friday and Saturday but total nerd alert, I was the guy who was studying my books all the time. I wasn't out partying or just hanging out with friends and making memories. I couldn't be still, I couldn't stop doing things, building up my resume, building up my GPA. And I knew the gospel and I believed it, but I had an overwhelming sense of guilt in my life for my sins from my age 14 to 22. And instead of being still and knowing the Lord my God and the good, good father he is and dealing with the sin and guilt therein, I just kept moving and going and going, trying to carve up some identity for myself and yet all the while really destroying myself. I was always anxious and tired. And the first thing Cameron said to me when I came here two years ago as an intern was he said, you gotta learn to Sabbath well. That's the one thing I'm gonna put on you. Everything else we can figure out, but you need to learn to rest. And so to those of you who are in college, who just got out of college, who are in high school and middle school, our generations are speeding up in our pace of life. And yet at the same time, we're more riddled with anxiety and depression than any other generation. So many of us are on the antidepressants, so many of us are afraid to open up, to be still, to stop, to hear our own thoughts. It's in our music. If you listen to 21 Pilots, that is like the driving theme and all that those guys sing about. And they're so popular because they've put their finger on the pause, that that's where we're at. And yet, and I think they get this, the hope that we have in Christ is that you can be still, that your thoughts are not the final voice over your life, but that it is the covenantal love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom you can be still, in whom it's okay to get a B minus, in whom it's okay if you don't know where your next job is gonna be, in whom it's okay to struggle with the hard, hard suffering of life. And so in worshiping, so often it starts with being still and resting. And so I encourage you then this Lord's Day Sabbath, as we've been given that gift to be still, to hear these words, And to return to God, let us cling to him in his presence. Let us trust in Christ and all that he has done. And let us be a place where we can genuinely be open with each other and help each other grow in worship. The beautiful thing, go off script for a second, that that happened on the way home from the youth retreat yesterday, as I asked one of the students who's only been with us for a year, I said, what's your favorite part about youth group? And she said, it's that it's a community where I can be open about what's going on in life and not be judged, but be prayed for and supported." That's what we wanna be, as a, not just as a youth group, but as a youth group as part of the church, as a church as a whole. And that, that is what the gospel equips us to be in Christ. And so in conclusion, in thinking about applying this text into review, Hosea 12, two through thirteen three teaches us three main things. One, that God calls us to return to him and to wait upon his grace alone for our salvation, for our newness of life, for rest. And two, that the means of grace, they unmask our sin, they open our eyes to the self-deception that we so often buy into, and they remind us of who and whose we are in Christ, that in Christ you are now made a redeemed and beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. And three, that false worship destroys us, but that true worship of the Lord our God brings life in Christ. And so as we prepare to worship with one more song, let us go before God's throne of grace, a place that is far more wonderful than even Bethel, where Ephraim and Judah were called to return. Let us go to the throne of grace in Christ and speak with our good, good Father. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word, that though it is often heavy, Lord, and presses upon us, Lord, we know you do it because you are pressing us out of our sin in order that we might come before your throne of grace in Christ and receive there the forgiveness we so desperately need, and receive there, Lord, and taste and see that you are good, that you love us. Father, I ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts this week, that your word would continue to, to percolate in our minds, and that it would come up often as we go through life. I pray for those, Lord, who are wrestling with guilt. Would you help them to find peace before the cross? I pray for those, Lord, who are wrestling with doubts. Would they find Lord, the ability to be open and to be known by you, their God? And I pray those, Lord, for those who are suffering in in countless ways. Lord, would you give them healing and hope that they would know that you are our God and you delight in being with your people wherever they are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done for us in him. And we ask now that by the spirit, you would open our hearts and loose our tongues that we would sing great joy and praise as we celebrate your goodness to us this day. I am praised in Christ's name, amen.